Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning because you are faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you never miss. You never let us down. You never fail to fulfill your promises. If you say you're going to do something, you always carry through. You never break a promise. You never break a covenant. You never go back on an oath. Your Lord are, are so faithful. Lord, people let us down, we know. We, uh, parents let us down profoundly, and yet you are the perfect Heavenly Father who always loves, who always supports, who disciplines, who, who does everything a father should do. Lord, governments betray us, and, and people are cynical today about the whole political process. But we praise you that as a king, you never abuse power, that you are righteous, that all of your judgments are just. Lord, uh, the world is full of things that change. Everything is impermanent, and yet you never change. Your ways are faithful and true. And so we praise you this morning because you're a faithful God. And I praise you most of all that you are faithful to your promises in the Bible to send a Savior. That you are faithful to your purpose to send Jesus to rescue us. And so we thank you this morning most of all for Jesus Christ, who himself was the faithful servant. He perfectly did your will. You sent him, as we just sang, to die, to be trampled. And yet he went faithfully, unswervingly toward the cross. And he fulfilled his destiny so that we might be saved. And so we praise you, God, because you are faithful. And Lord, we confess that we are unfaithful. We confess that even as Christians, we, we only seem to live up to uh, what we're supposed to be sporadically. Lord, we're, we're sorry that, that even when we try to do the right thing, we often do it with the wrong motives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts, that you would make us faithful to you and to one another as a church. Lord, help us to be people who keep our promises. Help us to be people who love one another deeply and don't, uh, help us not just to be fair-weather friends in the church, but I pray that this church would really be a family, that we would have deep love for one another, that we would uh, stick with each other even when things become difficult. Lord, we uh, thank you for uh, the fact that you're accomplishing your purposes in the world. I thank you for... Tom's announcement, just reminding us that Missions Week is coming up. We pray your blessing on our missions uh, conference again this year. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, just open our eyes to what you're doing around the world. Your kingdom is so much more enormous than this little place in Hingham. Lord, we pray that we would just be captivated by what you're doing in the world. Lord, we pray for all those missionaries that we support, that you would bless them and use them. We pray especially for the Sabians down in Costa Rica who are missionaries of the week this week that you put your hand upon their ministry. And Lord, you'd, I pray that you'd cause us as a church to give, give of our prayers, to give financially. Lord, I pray that you would even call more people to go forth from our church onto the mission field. Lord, thank you for, those, uh, for the Nortons that you're calling and uh, for uh, Catherine. And God, we pray you'd send them out and use them in the world. Lord, I want to pray for this church. There are a lot of people here who are sick and hurting. Um, Lord, I pray for Jal Nelson for his recovery and Paul Russo. Lord, we pray for Rita and Orville as they battle against cancer. Lord, I pray for uh, Kari and for Ann Burley who are both going in for surgery this week that you'd sustain them and heal them. And Lord, there's other people here who are ill or who are struggling with colds, even little things like colds, God. I just pray that your hand of healing would be upon them. We pray that you would bless your people this morning with uh, physical strength and emotional strength. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a holy church that loves you that you would cause us to love each other, to love the world around us. Lord, give us hearts for those who are poor. 
Help us to care for those who are needy and broken and cast aside. Help us to be where you were, Jesus, when you were on earth, with those who are most in need, most at the fringes of society. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible, we pray that you'd speak to us again. We pray that just like we got up this morning and there's that bracing, crisp, cold wind, we pray that the Holy Spirit would wake us up this morning, that the Holy Spirit would uh, refresh our hearts, and as we open up the Bible, we would hear your voice. And so, God, speak to us today. We pray that you'd be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And as our kids are going to Children's Church, would you take a Bible and would you open up the Bible to uh, Luke chapter 18? If you're using a Pew Bible, uh, you can find this on page 1038. Page 1038. As our kids head off to Children's Church, open your Bibles to Luke 1038. Well, I heard uh, Mark Jennings did a good job last Sunday. Little Jeremy. Or as uh, he's starting to call me now, Big Mark. So uh, he's turning around. I was down in Plymouth at uh, New Hope Chapel in Plymouth. And man, what, what a great church. What a great thing God's doing down there. We need to keep praying for New Hope Chapel. And just that God will continue to bless that church plant that's just started four years ago. All right, we are looking at Luke chapter 18 today in verses 31 to 34. And let me just read the passage, Luke 18, 31 to 34, then we'll dig in. It says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is there a purpose and plan for the things that happen to us and that happen in our lives Or is everything just random? Uh, Is there a reason for what happens to us? Or or are our lives just kind of bouncing around? You know, like, is is all there is in the universe just matter and energy, and it's bouncing around chaotically and randomly, and our lives are bouncing around, and it's not really going anywhere, and so we just kind of make the best of it as as we know how, but it doesn't really mean anything? Uh, Is there a story that's taking place? Are we part of a narrative? Or is there no narrative, is there no meaning, and we all just kind of make up our own little stories because that's how we cope with the meaninglessness of the universe. Do things happen for a reason? Uh, you know, I don't usually recommend movies uh, to you, just a few, but one movie, uh, one movie that, that I would recommend that I really, it's a great movie and has a great message. It's uh, by one of my favorite directors, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, and his uh, movie Signs. I don't know if you've seen Signs. He did, all of his movies are really cool, but that one is very interesting. Uh, in signs, it's, well, it's the story of an alien invasion of planet Earth. Uh, okay, so ostensibly, but it's not really about aliens. It's actually about something else that's actually far more real and, and pertinent to our lives. But in this movie, Mel Gibson plays out this, he plays this burned out Episcopal priest who's lost his faith. 
and it's because his wife died in a car accident, and so he doesn't believe anymore. And he's there with his uh, brother, uh, played by Joachim Phoenix, and he has two kids. And, and, you know, these aliens invade the earth. And so there's this incredible scene where there, it's just a great dialogue. Uh, he and his brother are sitting on the couch late at night, you know, watching the breaking news of these spaceships that are hovering over major cities in the world. And, and they're tr- you know, they're totally freaking out, as anyone would be. And they're trying to make sense of this. And so Joachim Phoenix says to his brother, he says, hey, you used to be a priest and you used to comfort people. Comfort me <laughs> as I'm freaking out. And so, and so uh, Mel Gibson says, okay. He says, basically, there's two types of people in the world and you fall into one or two of these types. He says, one type of people see things like this and they see coincidences and they see things happen and they believe that it's happening for a reason. These are people who don't believe there actually are any coincidences. They believe that there is a purpose and there's reasons that things happen and that there's therefore somebody out there who's making the plan and the purpose. And he says, these people, when they go through uh, chaos and difficulty, they still believe that there's someone there with them, that they're not alone, that there is a purpose for what's happening. And then Mel Gibson says, then there's other kinds of people who say there is no reason that everything is just chance and dumb luck and you do the best with it you can. And in the final analysis, we are profoundly alone in the world and in the universe. And so then, uh, you know, Gibson asks uh, Joachim Phoenix, in a sense, he's asking us as the audience, he says, you have to figure out which kind of person are you? What do you believe? I, I have a friend, um, a nice guy, he's a musician, and he... Uh, he went, he went through a major relational betrayal in his life. It's somebody totally stabbed him in the back. And, and it wasn't just a personal thing. I mean, it really had a profound impact on his career and his plans. And he was just so upset about this. And so we were hanging out talking about it. And he was venting. And eventually I asked him the question. I, I said, do you think this bad thing that happened to you happened for a reason? And he was like, I've never thought about it. Is there a reason behind this? And he says, you know, there might be. And, but see, once you start thinking there's a reason, then that means there has to be a reasoner. If there really is a narrative, there has to be an author. If there is a plan, there has to be a planner. And, and so who is that and what is that? Well, when we look at the Bible and we look at the Christian message, Christianity is saturated with the idea of purpose. I mean, perhaps more than any other world religion, I was thinking about this, thinking about the different religions, the different philosophical systems that are out there. Perhaps more than any other worldview, Christianity is just laden with an idea that there is purpose and meaning, that we are part of something, that, that God is doing something. In fact, you know, what is the Bible? It's a story. I mean, there's more to it than just narrative. There's poetry in it, and there's prophecy, and there's different kind, types or genres of literature within the Bible. But, but it's essentially a narrative. It's the story of what God is doing in the, in the world and in world history. Christianity is about a God, not who's just you know, up on a cloud sitting up there being divine or whatever. It's a story about a great God who is actively working in the history of the world, to accomplish a great purpose and a plan. And, you know, we don't see that. We look at the world and it's chaotic and it doesn't make sense and there's wars and there's disaster. And it's like, what is this? But when you put on biblical lenses and look at the world, you, so, you go, oh, wait a minute, there's something afoot here. 
God is at work. And even as a Christian, even as a, a student of the Bible, I can't stand here and tell you I understand everything that's happening. There's a lot that I just go, God, I don't get it. But, but I know enough from the Bible to see that God is working in some way. And yes, he's still mysterious, and you know, who could understand God? And if we could understand him, he probably wouldn't be God. But, but I'm trying to understand him, and, and through that I see that he has a purpose and a plan. And so that's what we're looking at today here in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. This is about the intentionality of God in the world. And we're going to look not at the whole story of what God is doing, because that would just take up way too much time. Um, and, you know, the Patriots are playing. We've we got to get home for that. And so I understand, I understand where your minds are at this morning. But, so, but I just want to look at verses 31 to 34. At, at, at the central act of the story, Let's look at the most important thing that happened in the story, which is the crucifixion of Christ. This is the critical chapter in the divine novel. Here it is. And here's Jesus. He's talking about it to his disciples. And so verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples what's about to happen. Look at verse 31. It says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So we're going up to Jerusalem. All right? In fact, we're about to get to Jerusalem. Look at uh, chapter 19, verse 28, is the triumphal entry. So we'll, be, we'll probably be studying that around August. We'll get there and um, eventually make our way there. But yeah, he's almost in Jerusalem. So that in terms of the narrative structure of, of Luke, uh, uh, of this piece of literature, we're, we're accelerating toward the climax in Jerusalem. And so what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples by telling them, look, guys, we're going to get to Jerusalem and something's going to go down. And I'm going to tell you right now what's about to go down. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has said this, right? In fact, you can probably find, probably identify five other times prior to this in Luke that Jesus has been dropping hints and telling people that when we get to Jerusalem, something's going to happen. And, but now he's, he's getting more explicit. And so here in chapter 18, we have the most vivid, extensive description of what's going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And he's saying, guys, I'm, I'm going to be killed. This is why I'm going to Jerusalem. And I want you to know this ahead of time. And so what's going to happen to him? Well, look at verse 32. Let's just read it. It says, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. And we know that took place. Jesus was arrested by the Jews, but he was handed over to Pontius Pilate. And then it was the Romans who crucified him because the Jews didn't have power to crucify. And so it was the Romans who did that. He was handed over to the Gentiles. And what do they do to him? They will mock him and insult him. I think of Jesus with that purple robe on his shoulders and the crown of thorns mashed into his scalp and the soldiers mocking him saying, Oh, hail to the king! And it says in the Gospels that they blindfolded him. Then they would take turns punching him and they would say, Okay, prophet, tell us, who just punched you? And they would mock him. Even when he was hanging on the cross and he was naked and and bleeding and just totally humiliated in front of the whole world. There were people, apparently, from what the Bible says, standing at the foot of the cross saying, Hey, Messiah, why don't you use your messianic powers to come down? <laughs> this kind of thing. He was mocked and insulted. They will spit on him. Nothing more degrading than that. They will flog him. Flogging... Uh, just means whips. You know, flogging is to take like a leather whip and strip off someone's shirt and just whip, whip their skin. And the Romans did this. This was part of, we know from history, that this is what the Romans did. This was part of being crucified. In order to accelerate the dying process, they would flog someone severely so 
so that they would uh, be bleeding and, and uh, already be in the process of death from shock and blood loss before they were even put on the cross. And then finally, they will kill him. He's going to be crucified. They're going to pierce him and put him on a piece of wood and hang him there till he dies. But on the third day, he will rise again. And so Jesus is telling them ahead of time, this is what's going to happen to me. Brace yourselves. We're going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to take place. Are you ready for this? And the important thing, the point I think that's being made in this passage especially, is that Jesus is telling them this ahead of time. This is part of the plan. What's about to happen is not a mistake. It's not like Jesus and his whole scheme is going to suddenly go awry and the disciples are going to be like, oh no, what happened? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I've been heading toward this moment since I was born. Since I was in that manger. I've been coming to this moment when I'm going to give my life up like this. This is why I'm here. This is why I came into the world. It's all part of the plan. In fact, not only is it part of the plan, God's been talking about it for hundreds of years. There have been previews, there have been trailers all throughout the Old Testament letting us know that this event is coming. Look back at verse 31. It says, we are going up to Jerusalem, here we go, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So he's saying, if you look back at at what we call today the Old Testament, but then, you know, they didn't have the New Testament, so it was just the Scriptures. When you look back at the Scriptures, Jesus is saying, what you see is this thread There's this theme, uh, this motif running through all of those stories, and it's the theme of the suffering Savior. You you go back to the Old Testament, the suffering Savior is everywhere. And, you know, we don't have time to to look at everything this morning because, gosh, I mean, that could take weeks and weeks. That's a whole other sermon series. You know, Jesus is suffering in the Old Testament, you know, foreshadowed. But, you know, just a few instances. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam uh, Adam and Eve sin, and they're about to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But instead of destroying them right there, God says a prophecy over Eve. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent, between you and Satan, and between your offspring and his, and he, you will crush his head, but he will strike your heel. So, yes, this, this child of yours, Eve, this descendant of yours, is going to destroy Satan, but in the process, his heel is going to be struck. And then what does God do? He, gets, he makes clothes for Adam and Eve. Out of what? Animal skins. Animals are sacrificed and killed to cover Adam and Eve. Or fast forward again to when Abraham had to sacrifice his son. You know, God said, I want you to sacrifice the son. And Abraham's like, okay. So he takes his son, and there he has his son on top of the altar, on top of the sticks, and he gets his knife out, and he's ready to kill the son Isaac, the son of the promise. And just as he's about to do it, God says, stop, you passed the test. I know that you love me now. And look in those bushes over there. There's a ram to be sacrificed in his place. Or we fast forward again to when uh, Moses was taking the Israelites out of Egypt and it was the night of the Passover. And and God says the angel of judgment is going to pass over Egypt and kill the firstborn sons of everybody in Egypt. So take a Passover lamb and sacrifice it. And take its blood and put it over the doorframe of your house. And stay inside your house. And and as that judgment comes over Egypt, I'm going to know that you're my people because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Or or fast forward again to all of the sacrificial system of Israel. It's all a prophecy of Christ. You know, the the priest laying his hands on the sacrificial animals on the Day of Atonement and confessing the sins of Israel over the animal and then the animal being sacrificed in its place. It's all right there. 
And then we get to the prophets, and gee, we don't have time to look at all the prophets. I just want to look at one. Uh, so what, what I'm going to have you do is put a bookmark in Luke 18, because we're going to come back to Luke 18. And I want to look at just one prophecy about the suffering Savior. It's one we studied before when we were in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 53. You just have to read this. This is so astounding. Isaiah chapter 53. It's on page 731 if you're using a pew Bible. Page 731. Isaiah 53. And here's a prophecy. I mean, this, is just, this prophecy is amazing. It's 700 years before Christ. Seven centuries before Christ came is when this piece of literature was uh, penned. And it was, it was about the coming of Christ. I, I'm just going to read portions of it. Uh, it's a long chapter. It's 12 verses. Um, but you, you just, what I want you to do is, as, as we read through this, be listening to these words and then thinking about the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus and His resurrection. It's all right here. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. Look at this, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Look down at verse 8. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And who can speak of His descendants? For He was cut off from the land of the living. This person is going to be killed. For the transgression of My people He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death. Christ was buried in a rich man's tomb. Though He had done no violence, no deceit was in His mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering, check us out, He will see His offspring and prolong His days and the Lord will prosper, will the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And so there's even resurrection hinted at. And it's all here. I mean, it's really an amazing text. Um, but the point is, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. In other words, what happened to Jesus wasn't random. I mean, if there was ever a moment in world history where you could point at and say, boy, that is meaningless, it would have to be the suffering of Jesus. A great injustice, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, you, people would agree that the crucifixion of Jesus was a terrible miscarriage of justice. To see somebody who was that good of a teacher and that kind crucified as the most heinous criminals are crucified. And, and so we look at that and we say, well, what is up with that? I mean, there can't be a God if things like that happen. And yet it was precisely at that moment that the plan of God was being executed, that the great turn of the ages was taking place, and God was accomplishing His purposes. It's amazing. And not only that, but God was telling us about it down through the centuries. There is a purpose. There is a plan. God is at work. And even when we can't make sense of it, His, His will is being accomplished and worked out. There is a story God is telling it and He's inviting us into that story. But you know, we don't see it. That's the problem. 
I don't see it. I miss it so much of the time. Uh, and even the disciples didn't see it. They, they just didn't get it. So put a bookmark here in Isaiah 53. And we're going to go back to it. And go back to Luke 18. I'm going to flip-flop around here. Look at verse 34. Here's how the disciples respond to this whole thing that Jesus is laying down for them. Check this out. Verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now, I thought that was such an interesting verse when I was studying this passage, and I was having a hard time understanding it, ironically. I, I, I couldn't understand this verse. I was like, well, what's there not to understand? Like, don't you know what it means to be spat upon? I mean, do you not understand English or you know, Aramaic in their case? You know, don't you understand what he's saying? Uh, and, and so as I thought about it, I, I sort of have come to the conclusion that about what it's not saying. It's not saying, this text is not saying, that the disciples didn't understand the meaning of Jesus' words. It's not like when he was talking about being flogged, they're like, flogged? What's flogged? I mean, they knew what flogged is. In fact, you could read this verse to somebody who doesn't even know the story of Jesus, and they know what those words mean. So it's not that the disciples lost their ability to comprehend language. I think what it means is this. When it says the disciples did not understand, what it means is they didn't understand that what Jesus was about to go through was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. That's what it means. In other words, they didn't connect Isaiah 53 that we just read with the thing Jesus says is about to happen. There was a disconnect. They didn't understand that the whole Old Testament was leading up to this moment, that what Jesus was about to go through in Jerusalem fulfilled this massive theme through all of the Old Testament. They didn't see that. And so as a result, they had a profound misunderstanding about the role of the Messiah. They didn't correctly understand what the Messiah would do. So yes, they correctly believed there's a purpose and a plan, but then they misunderstood what the plan is. See, it's not enough just to believe there's a plan. You have to know what the plan is. And so they misunderstood that. And so they said, yeah, Jesus, we know you're the Messiah, and we know you're going to Jerusalem, and when you get there, you're going to you know, clean up in Jerusalem. You're not going to be handed over to the Gentiles. You're going to hand it to the Gentiles, all right? You're going to give them the business. When you get to Jerusalem, you're going to conquer the Romans. And they're not going to mock you and kill you. You're going to kill them. You're going to lead the revolution against Rome, Jesus. And so they had bought into this kind of triumphalistic, conquering Messiah who comes into Jerusalem and cleans house and that's it. And so that was their problem. They misunderstood. And, and so they didn't understand why Jesus had come, which was to suffer and die and eventually be vindicated through the resurrection. And, you know, as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about the disciples. You know, it's so easy to be like, oh, those stupid disciples. Boy, glad I'm smarter than they are. Um, I, I realize, wow, we do the same thing, don't we? we? We have mistaken understandings of what God's purposes are. Even as Christians, we're like, oh, yeah, I believe God's doing things for a reason. But I misunderstand his reasons so often. And like the disciples, I assume, you know, just without even thinking, I, I implicitly assume that God's primary purpose is to make my life comfortable. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's God's purpose is to, you know, so I have 2.5 kids and my kids have no problems whatsoever and, you know, perfect marriage, perfect, uh, you know, house and family and no health problems and I never get laid off and, you know, nothing bad happens in my life. And so now that I'm a Christian, everything's going to go swimmingly for me. It's that kind of understanding. And maybe you've never said that, and I've never said that, but isn't that just kind of an operating assumption? And so we get so confused. 
when difficult things come into our lives as Christians, we're like, why is that happening? I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm following God. I thought I had on my, you know, bad stuff immunity spray that, you know, Jesus gave me and nothing can affect me now. I'm like Teflon. It just all slides right off of me. Um, right? And, and there's TV preachers who preach like that. I, I, you know, so I, I can't, I, I have this sort of love-hate relationship with TV preachers. I, I just like to watch it because it's kind of funny, but, you know, I don't know what to do with it. There's a couple good TV preachers, you know, like, Charles Stanley, I mean, that guy's solid. But, you know, so many of these guys on TV preachers, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Because so much of what they preach is, God wants to bless you, make you rich, make you happy, make you healthy. You know, and, and if you just have enough faith, enough positivity, God's going to deal with all your issues and you can have a great life. And, you know, uh, you know, what about take up your cross and follow me? You know, I, I don't hear those TV preachers preaching that side of it. And so all this stuff happens to us and we're like, geez, man, you know... God, why is this happening to me, Jesus? I'm trying to follow you, and gosh. And Jesus is like, I'm glad you're following me. But do you know where I'm going? I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, this is what's going to happen to me. So I want you to follow me, but do you know where I'm going? Are you prepared to follow me where I'm going? And ultimately, will there be vindication? Yes. And does God want to bless us? Yes. But you know how He wants to bless us? He wants to bless us by giving us Himself. That's the blessing God wants to give you. He wants you to know Him as a beloved child, and He's your beloved Father. He wants you to know Him. I mean... Does that just blow your mind or what? That we could know God? (laughs) What's better than that? Nothing. And so, he wants us to know him. He wants us to lean upon him. He wants to shape my character into the character of Christ. He wants to teach me to delight in God above all else. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God loves me so much that he's willing to allow trials and challenges in my life so that I can learn that this world is not what it's about and that it's about God. And He's willing to do that so that I'll learn to love and savor Him above all else, to put all my hope and all my joy in Christ. That's the blessing God wants to give me. And does He sometimes cure our diseases and give us jobs and stuff? Of course He does. He blesses us in other ways too. But His primary mission is is to reconnect us to Himself. And so we miss that. You know, we miss that mission. We miss that purpose. Uh, we, we affirm that there is a purpose, but we misunderstand what it is. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I believe things happen for a reason. I think a lot of people say that. Yeah, I believe things happen for a reason because they don't want to think that it doesn't happen for a reason. And so they say, sure, it happens for a reason. But what is the reason? We have to understand the reason and purpose of God. And, and I believe that the key that unlocks our understanding of what God is doing in the world is here at the cross. This is the... This is the interpretive clue that just sort of opens the whole thing up. And so what was happening at the cross? If you understand that, then you get the insight into the whole purpose of God. Why was Jesus being crucified? Why did the Messiah have to be mocked, insulted, spat upon, flogged, pierced, killed? Why why did He have to go through that? And you know, we can answer the question just by going back to Isaiah 53. It's all right there. So turn back there one more time. Why was Jesus crucified? Look at verse 5. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him and by His wounds we are healed. You got that? The punishment of peace was upon Him. It's like He was carrying around the curse that I deserve. Yes, God wants me to know Him, but there's something that's between me and God and that's my sin. It's the the way I've lived my life against God. And so if I'm going to be reconciled to God, that stuff that's between us has to be taken. And so God's plan was to take all that sin and all of my guilt and to put it on Christ instead of me. That's the plan that God executed. And so Christ is, is my substitute. And so, you know, all of, the, all of the lies that I've told to people I love, they've all gone on to Christ. And all the, the swear words that I've said to people in traffic, <laughs> go on Christ. And the gossip I've told about people behind their backs has gone on to Christ. And all the, the times we've gotten drunk or gotten high or been promiscuous or committed adultery and all of the filthy thoughts we've thought have gone on to Christ. And the fights we've been in and the things we've said in the heat of the moment in the way we've, we've hurt people with our fists and with our words and with our attitudes has gone on to Christ. And the things we've stolen from other people have gone on to Christ. And the fact that our lives have been characterized by anything but love for others. My total callousness to people in need around me has gone on to Christ. And the fact that my life has not been a life of love toward God, that the fact that if I'm totally honest, I can say I love sin more than God has gone on to Christ. And so all of that sin that just makes me, morally speaking, reprehensible and filthy, a wretch like we sang in Amazing Grace, that has gone on to Christ and Christ became wretched so that I could be forgiven. And so now I see, and I see our story is part of that story. And so when I read the Old Testament, it's not just sort of random things that happened a long time ago. It's like when I see, G, when I see Adam and Eve being clothed, I say, that's me. He's clothing me with the righteousness of Jesus. And when I see Isaac laid on that altar and Abraham's knife poised to strike him, I see that's me on the altar who deserves to be pierced and to be burned. I, I hear God's voice saying, stop, don't do that to Jeremy. There's a ram. There's a lamb that's been slain. And when I read about you know, the Passover and I see the blood that was put over the door, I see you gathered here. And here we are gathered as the people of God and the blood of Christ is over this place. And so we gather here together, metaphorically and literally, to, to be in Christ and protected from the judgment of God. And when I see all, see all the sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament, I see Jesus sacrificed for me and for us. And so it is through Christ's sacrifice that our meaningless and random and difficult lives are brought into and merged into the narrative of God's purpose in the world so that our lives are not meaningless, but we have been saved, we've been redeemed and brought into God's story. And now we're part of that story. And we become servants proclaiming the story. And we tell the people we love the story. Why? Because we're so much better than other people? No, 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 no. We're just so excited about what's happened. And we look forward to the culmination of the story that just as Jesus rose, we will rise. 
And so our lives are, are filled with narrative weight because we know that God has included us into what he's doing. It's amazing. So do you believe that things happen for a reason? Or do you think that there is no God and that everything is random? And, and are you prepared to follow that belief to its logical conclusions? Hmm? Because if, if there's no God and everything is random, then you know what? I mean, nothing matters. <laughs> Children don't matter. The Holocaust doesn't matter. Life and death doesn't matter. Any, nothing matters. It's all just meaningless. It's all just stuff that happens. But if there is a purpose and there is a reason, then you need to be honest and say, okay, why is there a reason? Where is it coming from? And there has to be a reason. And, and let me just say that, that I would point you in the direction of looking toward Jesus and say, have you checked that out yet? There's a lot of different things that could be an explanation for the purpose in this world. But have you looked at Christ and see whether or not he is the Savior of the world? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you loved us so much, that you spilled your blood, that you endured the mocking so that we could be forgiven and that all of our junk could be put upon your shoulders. Lord Jesus, I pray that, that you would forgive us our sins, that you would cause us to be a people who are satisfied with you and who are delighting in you. God, wean us off of this world and give us, a, give us hearts that cherish Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is asking the questions. Is there a God and is it real? I pray, Lord, that, I pray that you would give them the tenacity to keep following through on those questions. I pray, Lord, that they would not fall back into the, uh, the kind of narcotic slumber that this world induces upon our minds and our souls, that we would not be satisfied with that, but that we would press forward to ask those great questions. Is there a God? Is there a reason? And, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show your glory to all of us that you would show us that you weren't just a good rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, but that you came for a specific purpose, to bring us to God. And so, Lord, may we be a church filled with people, not who are self-righteous and snobby, but people who are just so thankful that you've saved us, and that we might be filled with joy. May our church be filled with delight and happiness that we've become part of your great scheme and your great story. Lord, thank you for writing us into your novel, and we look forward to the future chapters that are to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise team, would you come and lead us in a closing song?